On this week's episode of the Green Door Podcast, we discuss how dwarf creation got off to a rocky start. We explore the mothering nature of Mother Nature. We take personification to the next level in our first ever skit. We learn what happens when an Ainu smokes the Olvar. And we take a look at the professor's very first dwarf raid, plundering Norse names. All this and more coming up right now. Far over the misty mountains cold. Oof, it is cold. What with the rain and everything. Oh, hi there. I'm so glad you made it. I'm on my way to the Prancing Pony. Care to join? Ugh, it's so chilly tonight. I can't wait to get in and get warm. I'm soaked through and through. All right. Oh, what a nice, what a nice place. I've never been here before. Look at that. It's crowded. Hmm. Boy, good evening, lass. How can old Butterbur help you? Evening to you, Master Butterbur. Would you be so kind as to tell me in which room I can find James and Ads? Why, yes. Upstairs, of course. They insisted on the suite with the green door. Don't know why. Anyway, busy, busy. What can I get for you? Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. A nice big pint of ale for me. I'll be happy to send that up with Nog, miss. All right then, things to do. Gotta run, busy, busy. Ah, uh, that is so kind of you. Thank you so much. told me I would find you guys here. How's it going? Yeah, good, mate. Come on in. Look, I'm just lighting the fire. All right, thanks. Don't mind if I take off my cloak. Yeah, hang your cloak by the door. May and welcome. I'm just setting up the recording equipment. In fact, uh, I had to run down the hall and borrow some cables from Alan and Sean. Uh, as you know, we're on their turf here at the Prancing Pony tonight, but uh, they're a couple of really great lads, so uh, they were happy to oblige. And um, pull up a chair and get, get your headset on there, May. And Ads, are you ready to light up that fire? Yep, here we go. Terrific. So as Ads lights the fire, I would like to welcome everybody into our... Uh, we took the suite here at the Prancing Pony, so our recording studio tonight uh, is big enough to accommodate all the weary travels who made the, travelers who made their way to Brie uh, to visit with us tonight and talk about uh, a chapter in the Silmarillion. And uh, first and foremost, like we try to do every week, we'd like to talk a little bit about the engagement we've had on social media. Uh, ads, I think you've got a few people you'd like to mention. I absolutely uh, would, yes. So 
social media busy as ever uh, we've got Twitter so we've got at the green door pod uh, and there's well the usual gang that have been been chatting away to us over the last sort of couple of weeks since we last recorded uh, what I'm going to try and do is say a number of names very quickly again all right so timer on here we go Matthew Salvatore your art sucks Karen Caitlin <laughs> you read that in an incredibly awkward order I did Matt. I'm gonna say that again I'm gonna I'm gonna please move do, them around please do I'm gonna move them around <laughs> okay so I'm just gonna go from the names all right Oh, if you think I'm using any other version but that one, and you can you can re-say it as many times as you want. <laughs> okay, so 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 we've had some interaction on Twitter from your art sucks, Matthew Salvatore. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Say the name. This is ridiculous. <laughs> okay, right, okay, 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 I've got it. So, we've had some interaction on Twitter uh, the last couple of weeks, and um, the first name, unfortunately, is impossible to say without it sounding as if the next person um, has a problem. So, the first is Your Art Sucks, and then I'm going to leave a bit of a gap and talk, and the following person is then Matthew Salvatore, followed by Karen, Caitlin, Tumbling Sabre, Olga, Mike Moriarty, Sean E. Marchese, thanks, Sean, Matt Spatzel, Kenneth Anthony, at Ricardea, uh, Tom, Peregrine73, Covert Nerd, Heather, Rosie, Kigo, uh, Jay Glover, Carlos, Jeffrey, Nathan Roberts, Stu Backer, Bushdrach, and, and my sister Bex got involved as well. Uh, Saw Bex, yeah. I I think um, Bex was the last to join on in in the family, so welcome aboard, Bex. We're super glad to have you. Indeed. We also, James, we also, and this this is quite a big one, uh, we had a bit of a celebrity get involved this week. So a certain Neil Gaiman. (laughs) Hey, May. (laughs) May, May, May have suggested that that your work, your your mythology sounds glorious in his own words. I know. I'm still recovering from the shock. <laughs> Neil Gaiman thinks that your words are glorious. I glorious. think you can probably put that on the back of your first book. Yes, yeah, yes. I might I might print that Twitter um, shout out and just frame it on my wall. <laughs> Inspiration. If only people fun. could see your reaction in the direct messaging when that was going on. <laughs> If only. <laughs> but anyway, so Twitter's been really great, uh, really, really, really good fun in there. Uh, and we've also got a Facebook group, so the Green Door Podcast. We've now got 65 uh, people in there chatting away and and just just having a good a good time, really. Uh, the new followers, we've got Bradford uh, Coombs, we've got Guy Brady, we've got Mike uh, Meshalani Russo, we've got Pep Purr. And then we've got a chap called, uh, I think his name is Joel W. Horbaker. It, it could be Horbaker, maybe. Uh, Horbaker? Horbaker, I thought it was. I thought it was Whole Jawbreaker. Oh, Isn't it could it be Whole that. Jawbreaker? No, it could I, be. 
Um, <laughs> Joel told us. Joel told us uh, that he gets he gets uh, mispronounced all the time. Didn't he sort of say something to the effect of, "Ads, you're the first person in a long time to get it right." Fingers crossed, I got it right this time. But um, you probably got it right in one of those attempts. One of those <laughs> has to be right. It might be a silent W. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But no, uh, some really, really good feedback and um, some really good just interactions. And so, yeah. We'll yeah, come along and fun. play with us. Come find us in uh, Facebook or Twitter. And, and uh, there's some good stuff going on, just some fun uh, interactions. We play little games. We've got a nice uh, March theme going on. So come find us, and I think you'll have a good time. Anybody who likes Tolkien certainly uh, will find something that piques their interest there. Absolutely. Thank you, Ads. May, how are you doing over there by the fire? Is it warm enough? Yeah, warming up, warming up. Don't mind my boots. If they're you, a little bit of, uh, they're a little muddy. It was raining It was outside. raining earlier. Yeah, it was yeah, raining. Yeah, no, so. of course. Totally understandable, May. If you want to crack the window open there, uh, I think it might be getting a little smoky in here, and we'll move along to the mailbag. Where did we put that piece of mithril? That thing is worth more than my house, my car, and both of yours. So, uh, <laughs> ads. I hope you. I hope you hung on to that thing. Where is it? No, I did. No, I've got it here. I've got it here. Um, oh, yep, beautiful. It's a bit heavy. It's a bit heavy this week, but um, I think no, it's not just, the mithril itself. It must be full. Yeah, I think we've decided that we're going to do a couple of them, aren't we? So we'll save. Pull a out few the first for... two, and we'll see. Yeah, we'll see how many we can get through. Maybe two tonight. Okay. All right. So I'm putting my hand in, and we'll we'll see which which letter comes out. Okay, so here it is. Um, okay, this is from our good friend Matthew Salvatore. And his question is, who is your favourite and who is your least favourite character in the Tolkien verse? Ooh. Good one. Okay, the opposite ends of the spectrum. I like that question. It's, uh, there's a lot of characters there are. Uh, to choose from. So uh, I, I don't mind going first and uh, letting you guys... Think through that character list and saying that it's not that difficult for me. With even though there are so many great ones, um, I can I can pick a favorite character maybe more easily than a least favorite. So I'll go first with my puppy dog. Uh, <laughs> amongst puppy dogs, Huan is my favorite character in the Legendarium. Good uh, shout. He's brave beyond brave. He's uh, loyal and loving and I just being a dog person and loving that that whole story the whole Baryon and Luthien like I really uh, the younger version of me especially really admires um, Baryon's tena- uh, no, tenacity is not the right word although he's tenacious his uh, audacity um, and, and is just he was so in love to, to, to that whole story is really enthralling and Huan's role in it uh, for me is something special so there you go, my favorite. Uh, and we'll come back to least favorite for me and move on to you, Ads. Pick okay. one. Favorite or least favorite? Okay, well, I'm going to do a bit of a Corey from Tumbling Saber. I'm going to loophole this question and say I do, I do have a probable favorite. I mean, I, I could probably put it down to one. But the way I looked at this question was I broke it into The Hobbit, I broke it into Lord of the Rings, and I broke it into The Silmarillion. And... Probably my favourite character of the whole would be Sam from Lord of the Rings. I thought you were going to say that, and it, he could easily be mine as well. Good call. Yeah, I, I do. I do always, always fall back on Sam. I think so. He would be number one. However, I want to loophole it by saying from the Hobbit it would be Gandalf because he's a close second. I love Gandalf. Mm-hmm. 
And sure. I have, in only the last few months, I have uh, fallen in love with, with Beren from The Silmarillion. I think... Um, <sighs> Yep. I think he's a fantastic character, and his story with with Luthien is, well, it's good enough to have a separate book. It's good enough to be um, one of the greatest love stories I've ever read. Indeed. Yeah, uh, May, you want to take a crack at favorite or least favorite character from the Legendarium? Well, um, it's hard to just pick one, um, but one that kind of strikes my fancy because he's kind of like an underdog is Faramir. Um, mm. When we get introduced to him, he's kind of, you know, he's the brother in the shadow, <laughs> or he's, he's, you know, in, in his father's eyes, he's not quite as valued, or, you know, he, he has to oh, certainly, yeah. prove himself and whatnot. And he's, at some point when he's meeting, meeting up with Frodo and Sam, he is um, he is pushed to make a choice, uh, or he 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 is in a position of power where he could have taken advantage, let's say, of the two hobbits, but he chooses to um, help them the best way he can. And I find he's like a moral pillar in yeah, maybe absolutely uh, an environment that. Uh, would otherwise be, you know, in in a in a setting that would maybe be difficult to be morally uh, righteous, you know. So, uh, so I like him. I like Faramir. And That's a good, yeah. a really good point. Sure. Really good, really good. And actually, it's interesting to know Faramir was somebody, a character that Tolkien didn't even realize was going to be part of the story, did he? There's a isn't there a famous sort of quote where he sort of suggests that. Suddenly, Faramir came walking into into the yep. the forest or, or, or wherever it was. But you know, it was someone who came to the party quite late. But he was an uh, epiphany type character, I, uh, if that's the right word. He sort of just, just dawned on in. on the yeah. professor as as you know needing to be there. Um, yeah, Faramir's a great choice, and he he succeeds where Boromir fails. Right? He, right. he has when Boromir's alone with the ring and and has the opportunity, he fails. Mm-hmm. And, and when uh, yeah, Faramir's there. He succeeds where his where his superior, quote unquote, brother uh, didn't. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, good choice. Okay, so let's go. Let's get get down to. And we're not going to get too negative because it's it's. I don't think any of us hate much about these stories. But it's just because you love something doesn't mean you have to love everything about it. And there may be characters that grate on our nerves or remind us of people we don't like, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So who is it um, uh, that you find to be either poorly written? Uh, which would be hard to defend, maybe, uh, mm-hmm. but or or annoying, or just the character that you can say that's my least favorite in the legendarium. We'll go to you first this time. Ads. Okay. Um, well, we're looking at it again from the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, the Silmarillion. I had from the Silmarillion, Ale, Ale, the elf, so Maeglin's dad, who I appreciate. Yep. Not many of us. You know, certain people won't won't know who that is, but he's not a particularly nice individual. Um, That's a good answer. It keeps people uh, interest peaked. He's coming up. You'll even learn more about Ad's least favorite character from the Silmarillion. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a bit of an individual. Um, you've got you've got Wormtongue, obviously. I think you know you're never meant to like the chap. Um, but going back to childhood, 
I always struggled with the Tom Bombadil chapter. Now, I'm not saying that I have a dislike for for Tom, because I don't at all, but I know that it's only in recent years that I've actually managed to sort of um, look at that chapter in the way it was always intended. And I'm hoping that when I go and look at that chapter again after reading through the Silmarillion, I'll, you know, love it even more. Um, but that was certainly, from a childhood perspective, a chapter that I I didn't find easy. Um, yeah, fair enough. So that he, there's yeah. a lot of uh, si- silly language in it that takes away from the gravity of, of that character. It, I think it just it, it comes at a point in the story where you're so desperate to to continue um, along the same line. You know, the, it, it's almost you go into a completely uh, cut off bubble surrounded. <laughs> old forest where you know the black rider story suddenly stops and um i found that frustrating as a child if uh <laughs> yeah it may and i were just talking about edit- editing stuff and if that, uh, an editor got his hands on the story in 2018 tom bombadil probably would end up cut well there was um, a reason why he wasn't put in the film wasn't there i mean because it wouldn't have made sense from a uh it doesn't drive the narrative. No, it doesn't, from a visual point of view. But I, as I said, I'm looking forward to seeing if my views change even more so than they already have. Um, now I've read The Silmarillion and I, I see the, the backstory to The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, no, I can... Uh, it, it, bah, the more times you read it, the more depth uh, you'll see. Like uh, this week when Jeff shared that picture of Gandalf sitting all by himself... Uh, the still photo from the two towers. Yeah, that was mm. gorgeous. <laughs> and it, Very nice. And he says, you know, just Amaya sitting by himself, um, taking a moment of rest. I was like, wow. Yeah, that's powerful when you know the backstory. It is. Yeah. It definitely so, is. Uh, good answers. Uh, did you, did you, so you did the sill and you did worm tongue. Um, yeah. I, so. if, if I was, you know, I was struggling with The Hobbit. I was really struggling. I, and this is what we said off air, there'll be an answer that I wasn't sure whether it would be too controversial. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of, of Thorin. Uh, oh, that's I, that, <laughs> that's a good that's a good one to pick. He's on my short list too, though. Uh, okay. He's not likable. He's an, he's. Um, I almost said a word I would have to bleep out, but we're, we're, we said we'd keep it PG here, so I'll find other ones. He's he's an arrogant, um, grumpy, uh, egotistical capitalist. Uh, by the end of the, you know, until until he finds it's the very last scene. It's not his fault, guys. <laughs> <laughs> this won't be the first time tonight we we disagree. <laughs> I like Thorin. I I know I know he gets a lot of hate, but I like him. He's a complex character. He's got baggage, and I think his baggage is what sets him on the course that he's headed towards. And and I love a tale of redemption. And at the end of his life. Thorin redeems himself uh, on his deathbed when he's talking to um, Bilbo, and I just, I just love that he does like a one eighty. Yeah. And I don't know. I felt, I felt fulfilled. I don't know. I, I like Thorin. I like him. Even. Hey, that's great. We don't need to share the same opinions. That would certainly <laughs> be boring. So I'm glad uh, we don't agree on that. I, I don't love Thorin um, for much of the book. I find it's a very. Uh, very easy to uh, be annoyed by Thorin's attitude uh, mm. for me. I find him just to be like I'm. I'm 
naturally don't hang around with negative people, and Thorin is not a positive person. Uh, but like May says, uh, the redemption story is a good one, and it, he's very likable uh, right at the end of his arc. He's no, he you know, is, maybe even lovable. Definitely. So, um, and actually, that was that was portrayed very well in in the films. I mean, you didn't necessarily like uh, Richard Armitage's character, or I, I didn't. I no, he was too young. I uh, did. for me personally, but uh, yeah, but the way he, he was presented, the way the way he was sexy, which the way, he, present, the way he presented himself as an actual as a character. I mean, you didn't you didn't necessarily like him, did you? Uh, forget about See, what he looked like. I mean, his actual his treatment of of Bilbo and and the way he treated the other the other dwarves and his descent into madness was was done quite well. Um, yes, I'll agree with that. And yeah. Armitage is a great actor. He but is. May's reaction just there is the reason I didn't like him, is because girls aren't supposed to fawn over Thorin Oakenshield. No, and don't get me started on the rest of the hobbits. Uh, hobbits, the <laughs> yeah. rest of the rest of the dwarves. <laughs> listen, um, yeah. listen. You just go on Instagram and see how many accounts are dedicated to those dwarves. You know and. I don't sell that way, but, you know, it's, it is it is a thing, right? <laughs> oh, it is. Absolutely. Hot dwarves are a thing. And I bet you uh, hated Killy, right, May? Uh, no, no, I was not a fond, and I was not fond of that, that, that whole story uh, tangent with the elf and the dwarf, and it was just so, ugh, for me, I don't know. Why did they have to plug that in? Yeah, they need love stories in Hollywood movies. It, it was, I don't know, for me, no. Or New Zealand movies, no, I guess. No, no. <clears throat> so uh, my least favorite character, I was, uh, I'm just a repeat here, so I'll say mine quickly and move on to May, is Wormtongue. Ah, oh, you uh, guys. We're all on the yeah. same. Just, <laughs> he's yeah. just so dislikable. He's a slimy, self-serving, scummy character that's easy to hate, so he's an easy answer. May, yeah, you're going to say the same? Same thing, same thing, same thing. Uh, Wormtongue yeah. was my go-to guy. He's lecherous, he's twisted, he's repulsive, and he gets to live. Not in the book. He was killed by hobbit archers. At least, <clears throat> at, at, at least at the end of the arc, um, he different locations um, on top of Orthanc or in the Shire. But at least at the end, he he sticks it to uh, to Saruman. Yes. Yeah. So he's got that going for him. But besides that, there's nothing redeeming about him. You see, I forgot that the, that he did that. And even though you remind me. I still, <laughs> I still don't. Doesn't find do him. much no, for him, eh? No, no, no. All right. So uh, I hope those answers are satisfying, and we spent a few minutes there. Thank you for putting them in the mailbag. Uh, always good to hear from uh, Matt, whose art does not suck. That's for sure. No, absolutely not. I mean, he does some fantastic uh, um, Star Wars. How would you how do you call it? Stop motion. That's the and one. They're Stop motion. Not just Star Wars anymore. No, they're not. And how good was that? Amazing. That was amazing. So good. Wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Absolutely yeah. fantastic. Weather so, Yeah. I think James, you had a suggestion, didn't you, that you put to him? But let's get it on audio as well. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to. I didn't want because I know that these things are always tougher than sort of you think they're they're going to be. And so to look at it to me looks tough. So I can only imagine how much work actually goes into it. And so I tweeted at him. I said, look, maybe this is in, like the Mount Everest of stop motion, but the, the barrel riding scene from the movie <laughs> in Lego stop motion would be, would be a feast for the eyes, I think. Yeah. I reckon, I reckon he, might, he might try that. Good luck. He might yeah. need to take a sabbatical to do that, though. We, we can't wait. <laughs> whether, whether it's a year's time or, you know, 
whenever. Yeah, can't wait to see that. And thank you for the question. Put your hand back in that mailbag and let's pull out one more before we dive into the chapter itself. Okay, so let's see what's in. Right. Okay. Oh, this is a good one. Um, right, well, this is from this is from our friend Jeff Lasala um, of Tor.com. The, uh, well, fantastic Jeff, who also does the Silmarillion Primer, and he has, he sent us a letter that is uh, quite long, but I think I'm going to read it, and um, we'll see where we go. So it says, Lady and, Lady and Gents, here's my question for you. That's us. In the last couple of years, I've been listening to podcasts about J.R.R. Tolkien, primarily hosted by Americans, both the Prancing Pony guys, just down just down the corridor, and also the Tolkien professor are easy to relate to in this way. But I'm particularly excited to hear some more international points of view about my favourite author. And so I already appreciate this aspect of your podcast. Brackets, it's not just because of ads, non-accent. <laughs> I'm wondering if you could tell us what the general perception of Tolkien is in your necks of the woods, since Tolkien isn't one of ours. And heck, he never once set foot on American soil. It almost endears him to us, particularly to the Angliophiles among us. He's sort of aloof and untouchable in that way, even though we love and can relate to his works. But I find in America that the average reader either likes him a lot as both an amazing storyteller and as the grandfather of modern fantasy, or else really dislikes him in cynical sort of ways. The latter tends to stem from more jaded readers who prefer grimdark approaches to fantasy, which Jeff does not. I realise none of us can be a proper spokesman for our entire community or country, but I'm hoping you'd at least have a sense of it. What does your average Montrealer, is that right, Montrealer? Think of Montrealer. Montrealer. Think of Tolkien, for example. Uh, And how about the average Dorset dweller adds? If you do happen to address this question in an episode, feel free to paraphrase. Well, we haven't. We've read it all the way out. So there it is. Great questions. Yeah. How how does Tolkien get viewed in our own areas? Um, James. Over to you. No, I don't mind talking about uh, this because uh, I would love to have more people to talk about this with. The first thing I'm going to say about my Tolkien community is that it's very hard to find. If it wasn't for the internet, if it wasn't for social media, I I wouldn't be really part of a community. Um, I really feel like, and it's partly because Montreal is in uh, the province of Quebec, which is a bilingual province, but primarily French-speaking province. And so I think um, it's just not a book that gets read a lot uh, at the high school level, uh, maybe yeah. you know, as much as other places in the world, uh, Anglo places of the world, the United States, the UK. Uh, so that's, I think, working against it. But like Jeff said, much and Canada, there's, there's an expression, um, when the, the United States sneezes, Canada catches a cold. Um, <laughs> we are very much affected by their culture, by their media. Um, you know, you can't, if, if you were dropped in a major Canadian city downtown, blindfolded, or in a major, or major American city, you would not be able to tell the difference um, by looking around. Uh, certainly, it's very much the same in terms of um, a media. However, uh, culturally, there are some big differences. So, um, like Jeff says in his in, uh, about people either loving or hating Tolkien, 
I think it, it's the same here. Uh, people either really seem to appreciate them and have tattoos on their body, <laughs> you know, of dragons or magic rings or, or uh, runes, or they scoff at the idea of reading Tolkien because he's too dense and too hard and too aloof. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, we get we have a lot of that in, in Canada for sure. At least that's my perception. Um, May, do you do you agree with any of that, or is it do you see it a little differently? Um, yeah, I agree with some of it. Um, my pure later delivery guy actually has uh, uh, the ring um, tattooed on his forearm. Right yeah, beneath the cuff of his uh, of his uh, t-shirt, <laughs> so he's a huge fan. But I think you're right in the sense that um, you don't necessarily um, encounter too many fans, uh, hardcore fans, that is, of um, of Tolkien's Legendarium. Um, but I I think um, I'm going to be talking about from the French Canadian perspective, so the uh, French speaking community in Quebec. Um, and the kind of society that we have over here. So um, I actually went to my local gaming store and I spoke to the clerks over there and just got uh, like uh, the pulse, like what kind of like, what kind of vibe were they getting off, um, let's say, uh, the Tolkien uh, books or movies and what was their take on, on uh, people's appreciation of that in uh, um, in the French-speaking part of Canada, and they kind of mentioned a couple of things that were that are worth mentioning. Um, for one thing, Quebec is a society that's hungry for entertainment. So um, each year, Montreal plays host to more festivals than we care to count. Um, hmm. The movie and the gaming industry in Montreal is huge. Uh, think about Ubisoft being one of the biggest producers of video games in Canada. And we're talking about like RPGs and we're talking about like, um, I don't know if you guys are gamers, but uh, a couple years ago there was a huge release for um, The Prince of Persia, which was, right. uh, I think there was a couple of, uh, uh, not versions of this game, but there was a f an initial game and then like a, a second release or uh, So, uh, so there is there is there is a definite a, a definite need, and there's a there's a, um, a production for anything fantasy in Montreal. Um, there's also like Quebec has a strong sense of uh, or a strong taste for history, and I think the reason might be that um, people still hold on to their French roots. And James, our license plate, <laughs> read. Je me souviens, which mm -hmm. basically translates into I remember. So um, a strong sense of wanting to hold on, to cling to the past, to cling to the history, to remember how uh, the French-speaking settlers, uh, where they came from and how they came and whatnot, to remember the history, which sometimes can be a... Um, a little sore between the French and the English, but not so much anymore. I think like in our, in our generation, at least James, I think, uh, things have kind of, uh, glazed over, um, as opposed to our parents' generation. I don't know if you agree with me there. Eh, I don't know. You don't? Okay. I, I would agree not. with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I, well, I guess I'll say, I'll say this for myself, but in the, in the Montreal or greater Montreal area, for sure. I mean, I'm, My parents are both French-Canadian. I grew up, went to French school, and um, uh, w w kids kids like me, we 
tend to joke about the fact that we speak Franglish, you know, so we don't necessarily associate with one single language. We're kind of fluid that way. And, um, and uh, we don't really uh, have barriers between um, the two communities. You know, we kind of fit like somewhere in the middle, you know. Anyways. Yeah, that's the best place to be. For, right. <laughs> but bilingual in Quebec is like, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a VIP card to get into, you know, every, every room in the place. It's, it's certainly very advantageous to have both languages. So all this to say that um, uh, Quebec, because of, of our taste for history, let's say um, there's a bunch of festivals where people are... are Uh, you know, are dressing up in like period clothes, um, sporting mm. swords and axes, like camping out in the woods and re reenacting their favorite uh, Dungeons and Dragons sequence. Or you know, it, this is part of the, I guess it's part of the the culture around here. You know, and I'm not sure if the rest of Canada also has this kind of affinity for uh, this kind of role playing and whatnot. Um, how it is in the states, either I have no idea. But um, something else that's interesting, James, and that you almost made it to this place is the um, the Echo uh, Resort south of Montreal that uh, rents mm -hmm. out hobbit holes. So you can actually live in a hobbit hole for one night. <laughs> and, wow. Uh, it looks really cool. Check it out online. Uh, it's really a neat, neat setup they've got there. We have a link to that on our Facebook page. Uh, look it up in the thread um but you know just so that you are aware if you're interested in staying there for the night there's a there's about like a six month waiting period um i think for vacancy is that right yeah i think you're right it's it books up really fast so anyways all this to say uh all this to say that um most french canadians have not had contacts with the books ever like throughout their academic um lives um and our gateway has been mostly through the movies so when those movies came out uh, close to 20 years ago that was kind of like a <laughs> like an epiphany it was like oh my god this thing exists wow you know so i think a lot of the fans um what am i trying to say here i think uh a lot of people that's their that's their entry point isn't it right exactly so so from there i think a uh, fandom kind of blossomed but um yeah yeah i would agree with that for sure may that the the movies opened a lot of eyes in quebec yes uh, i don't i don't think there's uh another like if you if, if we were graphing it there'd be a huge spike when the first movie came out in terms of when the when the fandom grew and and but i i wondered and you know this better than me do you think a lot of people went and read the books or do you think a lot of the quebec tolkien fans are really peter jackson fans no i think there's a huge demand for uh the french books um uh, the uh The, the books themselves are translated in a multitude of languages, but here in Quebec, uh, you can pretty much walk into any French library and be certain to find a couple of copies of uh, some of the professors' work. Not the high school I work at, but that's another story. <laughs> see, guys, see, guys, can I can I ask a can I ask Very a question yeah. now? Then link link to that you, with with regards to the the French side. And the fact that obviously they're translated over into into the, the French language, are both of, are both of you able to to sort of speak and read French? Am I right? Oh yeah. Yes, yeah. May's fluent in French. That was her first language. Right. And okay. I'm. So, uh, 
I'm bilingual. I can read and speak French pretty so proficiently. So then, with, with that in mind, uh, how well are they trans? They are, you know, how well are they translated over? I mean, it, is the is the Perfectly. essence of the story? Is, does it still? It doesn't miss anything out. It doesn't. It doesn't change any of the meanings in any way. Some French people will tell you that it's more beautiful in French. Really? I have you heard that, May? You know, I can't stand reading in French, so I cannot answer this question. So I, I've never read uh, any of the work in French. Um, I have The Hobbit in French. I'll lend it to you if you want. It's, it's, uh, it's perfectly translated, in my opinion. See, I've like got The Lord it, of the Rings in French. Um, yeah, I saw that. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, um, beautiful editions, actually. France French, though. I bet they'd be different than ours. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yep. Cool. Okay. Well, shall I shall I jump in with sort of the please do the UK and and this is going to go around the houses a little bit probably, but um, hopefully I'll get I'll get there in the end. Um, really interesting to hear what what the two of you have just said, and I agree with you know with certainly with parts of it. Um, you were talking about gaming, May. There's a a game out on the PlayStation which I've got and I haven't honestly haven't honestly played more than about an hour of it at the moment um, called Middle Earth Shadow of War mm-hmm. and so you know there are there are games there um, for you know the gamer the gaming generation to to pick up on um, as far as as far as sort of the impact of the films um, I'd agree with that I'd say that there's lots of people out there that will have, have watched the films and that will have been their entry point um, where I live I live sort of in the southwest of England so it's it's a far more rural setting um, compared to say London now the the opportunities in in Dorset in Somerset where I live um, and in the sort of surrounding counties to go to big events <laughs> there isn't really the opportunity you'd have to travel okay. three four hours up the road up the motorway to get to a, a big city i suspect um it was interesting to hear about the you know the the events that you were talking about may because certainly someone in our facebook group uh, andy now andy i know is quite heavily involved from a star wars point of view and he will go to events, and he's got some fantastic sort of costumes. So he he goes as Darth Vader. I've never actually gone myself, but I've seen photos, and I'm sure he'd be able to sort of chat to to anyone that's interested. You know, Jeff about about that sort of thing. Um, he even takes his kids along and dresses them up as as Ray and um, what have you. So he he'd be someone to to give from that point of view an idea of the sort of Comic Con style uh, approach. From a, uh, a Lord of the Rings point of view, I don't believe there's anything like that in our area, but I suspect you probably would find more and more as you went to sort of the London and, and the bigger cities. Mm-hmm. For um, sure. Yeah. I do think that from my point of view, if I go and I walk into um, one of the, you know, the book, the bookstore chains, um, or, or even, you know, even a more local shop, you will have your science fiction zone area and in that area Lord of the Rings will be one of the, the more prominent you know books the Tolkien um, books will be will be quite clearly set out and, and marketed uh, but as far as as far as the average individual off the street um, 
are they fully aware of, of, of Tolkien? I think the older generation are, but um, if you if you ask someone who was in their 20s, they'd have to like the subject, I think, to sort of know too much more. They'd probably refer to the films if you said Lord of the Rings um, before Tolkien. Um, I asked my wife, who's not a huge fan in any way, and she said that she would know... Uh, she would know that Tolkien and Lord of the Rings were connected, but she wouldn't really have been able to say too much more before I started to bombard her with <laughs> information. <laughs> um, when it when it became clear that we were doing this this podcast, um, hi Sophie. Have, yeah, <laughs> thanks Sophie as well for for retweeting some stuff. Um, She's awesome. Yes, thank you, yeah, Sophie. Um, she has. Or she has. I had a look on online and you know you get these sort of 100 greatest films and you get these lists well I, I looked to see what what was around for books and um, there were a couple of, of lists that were done a few years back and Lord of the Rings was in it you know a UK based list it was done by one of the big papers in the country and on each of the uh, on each of the entries it had the name of the book, it had the author, and then it had a short blurb uh, to sort of give an idea about what that book was about. And there was no particular order, so it was like a hundred great books to read. Um, and for Lord of the Rings, it just had two words in inverted commas, and it said, enough said. <laughs> so, That's awesome. Yeah. There was no description about the book, there was no, you know... Yeah, wizards, hobbits, rings, uh, science fiction. It was just Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, enough said. And I think that is still the case. It is by far one of the greatest books um, ever written. I worry that perhaps the younger generation now are, are not given the opportunity to get into that subject because unlike Star Wars unlike Harry Potter it's it, you know it's the books or it's the films there isn't sort of comics there isn't TV series yet yet we'll see what Amazon does but I think that could be key because in the same way that the Game of Thrones um, books have been read by far more people now that they've seen the TV series Right. I think that when Amazon come along and do whatever they're planning, that is going to have a huge um, effect on another generation, another group of individuals who are in their sort of 20s who, unless mum or dad like the, fi like the films or like the books, haven't really pushed it on them. Um, so, yeah, it's exciting, I think, to see what will happen in the future. Hopefully, I've answered the question, but... I think you did. Yeah, great question. It is. It got uh, us all Jeff thinking. is a great is a great guy who gives great questions, great feedback, and helps out whenever uh, I ask him for help. So thanks, Jeff, for that great question. Uh, that mailbag still got some questions in it, ads, but we're going to leave them in there until next show. We've already um, taken quite a bit of uh, meandering time to get to where we're at, and I'd like to start talking about this awesome chapter. What do you guys think? I could not agree more. Oh, great. I love when we agree. Uh, I guess I will start by reading the first paragraph of the chapter. <clears throat> 
It is told that in their beginning, the dwarves were made by Ole in the darkness of Middle-earth. For so greatly did Ole desire the coming of the children to have learners to whom he could teach his lore and his crafts, that he was unwilling to await the fulfillment of the designs of Iluvatar. And Ole made the dwarves even as they still are, because the forms of the children who were to come were unclear in his mind, and because the power of Melkor was yet over the earth, and he wished therefore that they should be strong and unyielding. But fearing that the other Valar might blame his work, he wrought in secret. And he made first the seven fathers of the dwarves, in the hall, under the mountains, in Middle-earth. So that sets uh, the sort of stage for the whole chapter, and it's not a long one. And right off the bat, we find out um, and we've, we've been hinted at as we've read the first mm-hmm. couple of chapters that elves are coming, men are coming, elves are coming, men are coming, and then, boom, <laughs> dwarves are here. Yeah. Uh, out of the blue, sort of unexpectedly, uh, Ole does something he's not supposed to, and we have a race. So um, I know, Ads, you were really struck by this chapter when you first read it. Were you surprised uh, to learn that the dwarves were created in this way? Like, was that sort of out of left field for you? It was for me. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely was. I mean, I think that's why I like the chapter so much. I, I still, I still like reading this chapter. But when I read it the first time, I mean, I'm sure I, I probably messaged you or, or texted you or something, and was like, I remember the excitement you know, uh, what, the first what time you read the, it. Has just happened because, <laughs> you know, dwarfs are, they're a part of of the story. You know, there are, there are, famous great characters. Um, and now we know how they were created, and they were created by, you know, by Ole, and and they were created in a way that is so sort of symbiotic of, of their their characters, you know, under under a mountain in the dark, out of stone. It's just it's just great. Yeah, it's uh, I, I really like it too because it's the first sort of. Um, deviation from what seemed to be a pretty clearly laid out narrative so far. Uh, he sings, they sing everything to existence. They start building it. Melkor messes things up. Um, but this is like, boom! You didn't see this one coming. No, so, I really uh, didn't. No, it, it came as you said. It came out of left field, and it, it's so matter of fact. You know, it is told that in their beginning, the dwarves were made by Ole in the darkness of Middle Earth. It's it's like okay, the dwarves were made fine. And then, you know, you find out, obviously, more that we'll, we'll go through. May, when, when you read the chapter this time around, um, you know, what was your first impression? Did, did you remember that? Because I know you, you have peripheral information sort of floating around, but the, I don't know what's, what for you is concrete and what isn't. So was this sort of a surprise to you? No, not really. Um, okay. I, think, I think I remember this uh, from, from early, uh, an earlier read. Um, but what I... What I um, what struck me in this chapter, um, and maybe we'll get to it later. Uh, I'll just throw it in there for now. But um, the fact that Ole did this secretly and that he kept his counsel and he, you know, only Iluvatar knew about it. Um, right. Yeah. Absolutely. For, for me, I just I don't buy it. I don't buy the fact that. Um, he did this like illegally because I'm pretty sure the All Father knew 
that this was coming because he, Iluvatar knows the beginning of the song, knows the end of the song, and he's probably, you know, the same way that Iluvatar knows, let's say, of the hobbits, but nobody else does. Uh, He might have known about the dwarves uh, without his uh, Valar ever seeing it in the song. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, um... I agree with you. I I think he knows everything. I think I totally agree with you. Yeah. In fact, I was wondering just now if you were the Allfather and you were able to see my uh, notes on the (laughs) pie analogy because you you already started into it. But, um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's no, I totally agree with you. I, I don't uh, I don't buy it either that it was a secret. I think the only person who thought it was a secret was Ole. Uh, but the, the Iluvatar didn't think it was a secret. He knew it was coming. Same way I don't yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think um, basically I, I wrote in the notes here pie analogy and ads and may both sort of said, well, that's weird. what are you talking about? Hmm. Uh, to me, Ole making the dwarves is the same as a mother or father baking a delicious blueberry pie. I said blueberry because that's my favorite. My great-grandmother used to make delicious blueberry pies. And uh, putting it on the kitchen table within reach of, the, of, of a small child and leaving the room saying, I know that's your favorite pie, but don't eat any. And then coming back to the room a half an hour later to see a, a, a child covered in blueberry <laughs> all over his face, all over his hands. And the yeah. kid's like, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to, but you make the best pie. Your pie is the best, Dad. I love you. Um, to me, that's, that's what this scene is. It's, that's my pie analogy. So, so with that analogy, which is great, um, that obviously suggests sort of temptation, doesn't it? And oh, are, yeah. you yes. say, are you yeah. saying then yeah. that Aluvatar has deliberately tempted Ole and uh, the reason for doing so is possibly to see how he's going to react because you can't deny that there are connections between Ole and Melkor. Yeah, um, there are. Yeah. And you, 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 see, you see the massive difference in how they react when they are caught. Their purpose mm. and their reaction, I would say. Like the, the motives, the motives are different. Yes, and yes. the the reaction to the to being reprimanded is also different. Totally different humility from one. I'll say adds to your question. No, that's not exactly what I was proposing. Um, although I'm, I'm not. A, uh, we can talk about that idea. That the pie analogy refers more to Ole's role as the child uh, being unable to not uh, create or eat the pie. Okay. Um, I don't know that I, I specifically meant that there was temptation. There might have been. I think m- the way I see it more is that um, the reason this happened to Ole is because he's most like Melkor. That's why it happened to him. Not that he was necessarily tempted, just because of his characteristics and makeup, he was most likely to do something like this that he wasn't supposed to. So why did Iluvatar let him do it? Mm. He let, to, yeah, to the they point do have that free he will. It. They do have free will. He lets Melkor wreak havoc, right? He does. He never steps in and says, uh, "Hey, hey, stop breaking their stuff." But he, ste- <clears> he, so, ste- he steps into Ole. He, le- he, well, lets, him, he, de- he lets him finish. He lets him finish, and then he steps. He doesn't in. really step in. He just I, well, he he does step in, but he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't change anything, right? In the end, he lets him keep them, and they still exist. He just steps in and says, "This wasn't a secret." Is what he does. I knew I think, about this. Go ahead. I think he also confronts him to to re 
establish his um, dominion over over Ali. So yes. Iluvatar steps in and be like, oh, what'd you do? What'd you do? And, <laughs> and you know, to kind of, you know. Put him in check. Yeah. Snap him back exactly. in, uh, to attention if exactly. he was a soldier. And, and maybe Ali could have reacted differently and then we would have had a different story. Um, yes. You know? Also, I think, uh, yeah, no, I agree with that, May. And I think also um, by, you know, calling him out, uh, he, he was watching what was going on or knew what was going on the whole time or whatever. And like it says in the chapter, these weren't going to be full-fledged life forms if he doesn't step in and, no. like, grant permission. He, no. they, oh, what it says in the chapter, it goes on to describe uh, the fact that he created this race, but really they were sort of like robots, soulless robots, who would only... Um, you know, or marionettes without strings that Ole could control and make them do things. But if he wasn't thinking about them and controlling them, they they'd sort of just lie around uh, motionless and inanimate. And and um, Iluvatar grants them free will. And it's sort of cool in the chapter. It says specifically uh, when he and this is a heartbreaking thing for a father to have to do. But after the All Father gets mad, Ole raises his hammer uh, to you know to to say, "I'm sorry." Uh, this is a big mistake, and I'm so sorry that I'll, I'll destroy what I did. My bad. Um, and when his hand is stayed, or right before his hand is stayed by Iluvatar, the dwarves flinch. And yeah. I like how it, it says in the text, Iluvatar says, well, um, I, I, I accepted your offer. Uh, he says, thy offer I accepted even as, as it was made. And the offer he's talking about is, is uh, when confronted with them, Ole said, well, Dad, I'll give them to you. Uh, you know, I made them uh, because I love creating things, and I love I love Arda, and I think it's got room enough for more beautiful things. But I mean, I I, I don't want them. I, it's not that I made them for myself. I'll give them to you. Uh, it's one of the suggestions uh, for compens for you know to to make up for what he did. Um, or he says, or I'll just smash them with my hammer, and then they flinch, and the Luvatar stops him from smashing them and says, "Thy offer I accepted, even as, as it was made. Dost thou not see that these things now have a life on their own and speak?" with their own voices, else they would not have flinched from thy blow, nor from any command of thy will. So, yeah, he has to step in to give them souls, I think is a big part of the uh, equation as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree. I mean, it's at that point that the dwarfs get a spirit, um, which we'll see later on is linked to, you know, the halls of Mandos, perhaps. But at that point, when the dwarfs become independent... You know, they have a life of their own. They can act um, themselves without Ole's, you, you know, instructions. Um, at that point, the dwarves are bound by the music because at that point, Iluvatar brings them in alongside the elves and the men, um, you know, in the, in the great plan. 100%. And you're going to read a little bit about uh, more about that uh, in just a minute. But, uh, yeah, is there, is there any other reason that you can see May for Luvatar stepping in at this point? Because, like, like I sort of pointed out a few minutes ago, he doesn't really intervene very much, but he does come into the story here. The Allfather comes into Arda and has a little convo. Um, so is there any other reasons you can see? Not, not to me, no. Um, I think we covered it pretty yeah. well, eh? Yeah. Good. Good, good. Okay, so good. Good, good. Yes. Yes, yes, good. <laughs> All right. There's my Alistair for tonight. Check. Uh, ads. I think then if uh, you'd like to pick up your copy of The Silmarillion and read 
a little bit more about um, the idea that uh, Louvatar accepts the creation um, and you know blends it into the music. Okay. But Aluvatar spoke again and said, Even as I gave being to the thoughts of the Ainur at the beginning of the world, so now I have taken up thy desire and given to it a place therein. But in no other way will I amend thy handiwork, and as thou hast made it, so shall it be. But I will not suffer this, that these should come before the firstborn of my design." Well done, sir. Thank you, Thank Ads. You. That's all right. Um, yeah, so he basically says, look, yeah, uh, you, we can keep them. I'll, I'll find a place for them in Arda. I'll build them into the music. However, oh, and I'll leave them exactly as you did. Because uh, Ole says, you know, oh, great, you're going to take them over. You'll make them even better. He says, no, no, you design them. I'll just, I give them life. I'll give them a place. The one thing I am going to intervene about, though, is they're not coming into Arda yet. I refuse to have your creation uh, walk around before the ones of my design, the, the elves and the men. So Luvatar yeah. uh, says to him, you know, that is the one sort of uh, caveat that I'm, I'm putting to this deal of letting you keep them. So you've got to bury the uh, dwarves that you've made. How many of them, uh, Ads? There were seven fathers, weren't there? Interesting, seven. They seven. probably end up with some pretty fancy rings at some point down the road. Um, <laughs> but uh, there were seven of them who ended up buried in stone. Uh, yeah. And so, or, that's the idea, the image. Uh, and all, all around, all around Arda. You know, they're not all in the same place. Ole went round and sort of popped one here and one there and, you know, one under that mountain, um, which I thought was good. Like Easter. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> a hunt. <laughs> Come find a dwarf. <laughs> I don't think that was the uh, parallel they were trying to draw. I wasn't supposed to go to Jesus on the uh, Easter egg hiding of the dwarves, but I went there anyways. It's applicability. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, he, so he, they, they have to hide those in stone. And May, this certainly has to ring um, familiar to you these dwarves being sort of hidden in stone and, and uh, that part relating to Norse mythology? Absolutely. Uh, Norse mythology establishes that uh, dwarves live in stones, that if you peek between boulders, you might catch a glimpse of the stones working in their their forgeries uh, deep beneath the earth. So um, in our segment of mythology, we dive a little deeper into the comparisons between the two, and um, it's actually quite striking um, uh, how closely related uh, Tolkien's dwarves are to the actual dwarves of Norse mythology. You no, know, uh, more than related, they may, uh, they may be brothers from uh, another naming mother. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, the mythology segment is really excellent this week, and I can't wait to get, the, can't wait to get there in uh, a little bit. May, I yes. think if you're ready with your page open, we'd like to hear you read um, some of the Tolkien's beautiful work from this chapter. Aforementioned, it was held among the elves in Middle-earth that dying, the dwarves returned to the earth and the stone of which they were made. Yet that is not their own belief, for they say that Aule the Maker, whom they call Mahal, cares for them and gathers them to Mandos in halls set apart, and that he declared to their fathers of old that Iluvatar will hallow them and give them a place among the children in the end. Then their part shall be to serve Aule and to aid him in the remaking of Arda after the last battle. 
Thank you. Wow. Uh, and I do like where that leads. Um, sort of open-ended ideas to, well, uh, they were put to sleep in stone, and the elves believed that when, for at least for a time, the elves believed that when they died, they returned to stone. Seems logical enough. Um, but the dwarves themselves have different beliefs, and it says they think they probably end up uh, in the halls of Mandos, maybe in a special section cordoned off by their creator, which uh, I'll start by saying I think that's much more likely from what we've been introduced in this um, creation in this music. Uh, Iru, uh, excuse me, Iluvatar seems like a pretty compassionate guy, and to me it just seems more compassionate to have the dwarves' souls live on uh, to some greater extent uh, as opposed to turn to stone. So uh, what do you guys think? You same page, different page? Do we agree? Oh, yes, we agree. I just wonder why the elders uh, decide or, or believe that they go back to stone. Is it out of spite, you think, because they themselves don't get to go and move on to a different afterlife? So why should oh, the mate, dwarves do? Oh, that's a do? good point. That is a really good point. Maybe there could be certainly part of it to that. Like, hey, what do you mean these these sort of uh, stouter, stockier, hairier versions of us um, get the same gift as men? That, th- that doesn't seem fair. No, they just go back to rocks. Yeah. Could, could very well be. Yeah. Ads, what do you think? I think um, I think right at the start of what May, May read there, she said a four time. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether that's quite key because it may well be spite, but it, it might just be the fact that you know there was this belief. The elves believed originally that they would they would you know go back to stone, and that it was only later on, after the elves and the dwarves met and you know exchanged stories, etc., that you know that viewpoint changed. Um, I would say that you know the following the following part of the story refers to how the seven fathers uh, of the dwarves how they they get reincarnated so they arrive back into the body of another dwarf after they've died and who knows (laughs) they they could have passed on the message of of what happens and the fact they've got souls as well I think that's key you know, Iluvatar has given them um, spirits, so I think if they turned back to stone, those spirits would have to go somewhere. Uh, so I believe that, that they probably do end up in a version of the Halls of Mandos. Very good. I think uh, we covered basically what we want to cover up to uh, something that I'm going to call the skit. And very, very shortly you're going to hear the first, uh, uh, hopefully of many, uh, productions that we've been working on. Whew, geez, it's been two weeks now we've been working on the skit. Feels like it. Maybe it's, it hasn't <laughs> been quite that long yet. But uh, May came up with a terrific idea for a skit uh, to cover what will be the rest of this chapter. But before uh, I jump too far ahead, um, just to summarize, we've got Ole making the dwarves in secret, underground, where uh, Iluvatar finds out, gets annoyed, um, but lets him keep them with some conditions. And um, Ole's happy with this. Ole, through the whole thing, is uh, contrite when he's confronted. He's humble. He shows humility. Uh, And because of this, uh, his dwarves, his creation, are allowed to exist. Do you think Ole's character, then, 
is something that is passed on uh, down through the dwarves because Yavanna certainly does, and we're going to touch on that in the skit. But do you guys think that the idea that Ole, the creator, had those things, the humility, and I'm thinking of, of uh, Gimli now falling off a horse, but do you think that humility that he had um, was transferred down to that race? Is that something that, that we see uh, in the dwarven race? Should you go, go? <laughs> Yes, I'll go. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> At least not from the get-go. Uh, the dwarves are a, a, a race that's very proud. Um, mm-hmm. Don't mess with the beard. Don't joke about the height. You know, they have a short fuse. And don't toss the dwarf. Yeah, don't, to- <laughs> don't toss the dwarf. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that you mentioned that their creator is so humble, and yet his children are not. No, I, I, I'm going to bring that up again later once we talk about Yavanna's fears, whether or not they're founded. But I wanted to see what you guys thought about. I, I, I agree with you, by the way, and adds, you haven't answered yet, but I don't find the dwarves to be humble at all. In fact, proud is the word I would use. Yeah, I would agree as well. I think, I think, I think proud is, um, hits the nail on the head or the, the hammer on the anvil or however you want to put it. Because you know who else seems very proud is Yavanna. She's very proud of her creations. And so I think when Ole was crea- crafting the dwarves, even though he didn't have help from his old lady, he may have had her in mind. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think they, are, they are very different, aren't they? Ole and Yavanna are the opposites attract, etc. But actually, they have some extremely uh, close similarities as well. You know, they are... Out of all of the Valar, they are probably the ones that should have been married because they have a mutual love of the land. You know, mm-hmm. one, one creates the land and, and one sort of puts the, the icing on top. Um, one bakes the cake and one decorates it. That's yeah. a good way to put it. Um, yeah. I, I agree with that. And they both, have, they both certainly share a ton of common ground, pun, in, pun intended, when it comes to creation. They just both have a, an infatuation with creating. Uh, I guess all the Ainur do, mind you. Um, but yeah, uh, that's, I think, a good setup, talking about how opposites attract and how they are a great married couple. That's a good setup to talk about uh, our skit. May, do you want to um, just briefly uh, tell us where the idea came from uh, as you read the chapter, or maybe it was after you read it? Like, uh, what made you reach out to Ads and I and say, hey, I have this idea? Actually, um, I read... Jeff LaSala's primer uh, on uh, this chapter and mm-hmm. um, I believe he compared them to the old bickering couple in mm-hmm. Princess Bride so <laughs> oh yeah he does um, Miracle Max and uh, Valerie. what's her name Valerie, that's right. I just <laughs> love that part in the movie I think it's a comedic relief it's brilliant and I'm like wow why don't we do this? Let's let's Liar! think of something. <laughs> She's so good. <laughs> so so that's that's what kind of sparked the um, the inspiration here. Um, although yeah, good call. Although my vision of Yavanna was not as uh, how can I say as shrill as Valerie might be in uh, no. In that couple, so, um, but you know, it, it 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 was a great opportunity to uh, to do some character exploration and to have some fun and, and whatnot. So, 
Yeah. And that's what this is. So we're, we're, we're going to uh, put play for you now a pre-recorded uh, skit we've put together with some sound effects, etc., uh, where we're going to take on the personalities of Yavana and Ole uh, and Manway uh, for the last part of this chapter where basically... Um, yeah, well, I'll set the stage by just saying uh, at some point after he got in trouble from Iluvatar for creating these dwarves, uh, he also has to explain to his uh, wife, hmm. uh, another one of the Ainur, that he did this thing in secret. Uh, so that's what this skit is about, and we'll take it from there. Once upon a time in Arda, while the trees were young and the Ainur were in the midst of shaping the world, Ole the smith decided to create the dwarves in secret. When Iluvatar discovered this, he was not pleased, but Ole showed humility and repented, earning Iluvatar's forgiveness. Feeling tired and ashamed, Ole returns home to find Yavanna at work in the garden. I'm so happy, cause today I found my friends, they're in my head. <coughs> Yava, I'm home, it's been a rough day. Oh, hey, Bumpkin. There you are. We need to talk. Um, oh, how about after we eat? I'm starving. What's for dinner? There's some kale salad with uh, roasted Brussels sprouts and some wheatgrass shakes. Oh, and a big bowl of secrets. Oh, man. That's rabbit's food. I thought we were having... Oh, I see you want to talk about this. I'm sorry. You don't like what's on the menu? Don't like that I created something from scratch without consulting you? Yeah, I get it, but... Well, now you know how it feels. Yava, baby, don't be angry. You know I love you, but... That's all right. That's all right. Just tell me what happened. Okay. What happened with what? Baby, baby, baby. My big, scruffy, banoffee pie. I'm talking about what happened after Iru found out about your secret science project, about how you got the All-Father upset because you were hasty and created a race without telling anyone, including me. Well, he was pretty pissed, but he forgave me. And, oh, he let me keep them too, Treacle. Mm-hmm. Good for you. You know, you still should have told me. I could have helped. Yava, sweetie, I knew it was forbidden. So did you. You would have tried to stop me, and I was in the zone, man. Anyway, what's done is done. Let it go. Let it go? Allie, babe, you gave dwarf ladies beards. Beards. Do you realize how mad they'll be? Yeah. Really? Is that bad? I thought it would help keep their faces insulated from the extreme heats and bitter colds of the world. Ah, well. 
Won't have to worry about that for another age or longer. Uru wasn't very specific. Oh, all right. Well, there's something else. What else, Yava, my love? Oh, honey, don't Yava me. Your children will love nothing. Well, that's not true. They will love building and mining and gemstones and armor and forging no, and... No, 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 You don't understand. They will love nothing of what I love. Can't you see that? Their hearts will be like yours, hasty. And Iluvatar knows women don't like hasty men. <laughs> no, don't laugh, don't laugh. That's not funny, by the way. My blessed Kalvar, my Olvar, they will be nothing but a means to achieving their own selfish designs. Yes, maybe. But this will be true of men and elves, too. They will all need places to live and things to eat. They'll claim the whole, whole enchilada. Do we have any meat I could do with a nice steak right now? Meat? Wait, what are we talking about here? Never mind the meat. What if the children don't see or understand the delicate balance of my designs, the, the importance of all creatures, great and small? What if Morgoth perverts their hearts and causes them to use my gifts without reverence or gratitude? Who will protect the creations of my heart? Hmm. This leaves me no choice, Allie. The great races of elves and men and your dwarves, well, they better watch out. <laughs> yes. Or else what, my treacle? What new thorn or spike is my gentle Yavanna gonna dream up in a cloud of smoke? You really are very beautiful when angry, my sweet flower. I do love you. Not now. No, and this is no joke, Allie. And you, my love, out of all people, you should know better than to underestimate me. I'm getting out of here. I need some air. And I need some food. Now, where is it? Oh, yes, here we are. Ground beef, uh, tortillas, oh, and cheese. Oh, mature cheese as well. I like that. It's a beautiful night, isn't it? The glow of Telperion highlights both the beauty and the sadness in your face, sweet Yavanna. The stars are my witness, their twinkle my heart, Reverend Manway. Tell me your troubles, sister love. Is it true what Ali says, that when the children awaken... They will have dominion over all my creations. Hmm. The children will have dominion over the creations of all the Ainur. What in that truth troubles you, Yavanna? All of my creations are essential in the greater scheme. Each has value and contributes to the worth of others. I fear... They may be mistreated and misused. I love all my creatures, from the most tender sprouts to the fiercest furballs. 
Many have I gifted teeth and claws, speed and cleverness, camouflage or poison for their own protection. But my trees, my sweet, beautiful, defenseless trees. <laughs> Yavana, you have that look in your eye. What are you on about? See, here's the thing. I have a vision in my mind that lingers from the music, and it's totally stoked. I want tree shepherds, wise and noble yet strong and fierce in wrath, tree-like in appearance yet unrooted so that they may live in the forest unseen bringing justice to those who would be cruel to the trees. <laughs> and exactly what kind of olvar is that you're smoking, Yavana? <laughs> Stop teasing, brother love. It's not the leaf talking. Huh. Leaf talking, talking leaf? Ah, yeah. And they should talk. I saw them in the music. Manway? Manway? Hey, wake up, man. Where are you at right now? Hmm? Hmm? Oh. Pass that over here. All right. I spoke to Iluvatar, and he says he was already aware of your tots. And he gives your Ents a green thumbs up. Haha, <laughs> you see what I did there? No? At any rate, he gives your project the green light. No? Nothing? Ah, very well. So be it. When the children awaken, you shall have your shepherds of the trees, walking the forests, protecting that which you most love. Now, go and worry no more, Yavana Kementari, lover of trees, giver of fruits, and scorner of my jokes. share with you. Now, where did I put him? Wait, let me see. Keys, lip gloss, nope, bipeds. Ugh, I can never find anything down there. Ooh, yes! Here they are. Ants, and they come with Ira's blessing. Put that in your pipe, dear husband, and smoke it. Ah, uh, Yara, my love. Yes, I get what you're saying, but ents or no ents, the dwarfs will still need wood. 
So there you go, our first rendition of uh, Make Believe Theater. If you enjoyed that, please send us a tweet and let us know at the Green Door Pod. Uh, one thing I will mention before we talk about uh, sort of what happened in that skit is that uh, in order to make it relatable for our listeners and portray a modern couple, um, we changed, tweaked some things a little bit. And in reality, in the text, Ole is a humble guy who's a nice dude who admits to his wife. He doesn't get caught um, red-handed or anything. Uh, She doesn't find out about his secret, and then he fesses up. No, he comes uh, forthwith and tells uh, Yavanna what happened. But in the skit, that's not exactly how we played it, and I think we did a pretty good job of sort of capturing the gist of how that argument would have gone. At least I hope we did. Um, Ads, I hope your voice is okay. Oh, my voice is struggling big time. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I know that that takes it out of you to do the uh, Ole impression, but uh, I, I want to just first comment on the uh, script itself. May, May and I um, went back and forth on that a little bit, and May's got a really good eye for uh, writing dialogue, so I'll give her most of the credit, uh, and thanks for helping me out with that, May. Oh, you're um, welcome. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was fun to put that together. Now, yeah, it's really, really good. Do you guys... Uh, think that if you were in a similar situation um, Yavanna acted in a way that many women would because I'll start by saying I think um, the woman in the text loves her man a lot um, and handled it very very graciously Uh, certainly um, keeping secrets from people can set people you know can can really be a trigger for some and she handles it pretty coolly but Tolkien did say in a letter uh, that Yavanna was angry. If ever it's unclear, uh, she is angry with him for the secret, but she's a pretty cool lady, don't you find? Yes. I, I, <laughs> we joked about it in the skit, but yes, I mean, I think... I think Yvanna is clearly is clearly annoyed, clearly angry at, at finding out that, that her children, you know, that her creations are going to suddenly be... Well... Sport for for the elves, for the men, uh, for the dwarves now who are going to want to cut cut trees down and 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 make things out of them. Um, and look, she confronts she confronts Ole, and and then she she goes and and I think the text actually says that you know she she doesn't sort of give away the confidence of Ole, uh, but she speaks speaks to Manwe to to see what can be done. Yeah, she's and, and this part of the book actually sort of surprised me. She seems a bit dense to not know that she did know. I mean, the the Ainur were sent to build um, a world and prepare it for the children. And it's not that uh, Iluvatar's uh, children are going to have dominion over her creations. They'll have dominion over all the Ainur's creations. That's their job was to go and, and, and set things up. So it, to me, she seems a bit dense for not realizing that until this moment. Um, but uh, I do understand her fear. You know, she's put all this time into her project, and now she's hearing that it, you know, people are going to mess with the stuff she's building. So I do understand her fear. I think she's, I think she's being unrealistic. Um, I do too. Because she... Her, their job is to create a world for the children of Iluvatar. So the way I read it was that she wants to create something that then is to be protected no matter what. 
and that that's not that's not unfortunately what what her you know task was it was to prepare the world for the elves for, for well you know men. what adds though uh, you, you bring me to a good point there um, you bring up a good thought in my mind maybe she was fine with it uh, until Ole got to do something that wasn't that you know her and Ole were both tasked with with preparing the world for for elves and men yeah and she was fine with that and then she finds out Ole got to build something now that uh, is protected like you said some, you, she wants something that's going to be protected well, he got to build something that's going to be protected. Now, maybe she want, you know, she also, doesn't like the fact that it's unfair. Also, you've got to remember that at this point in time, the elves, the men, they aren't around. So True. At this point in time, there isn't the threat. And suddenly, her husband's gone and created something that is going to wield an In the axe. immediate. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Exactly. And so suddenly, the goalposts have changed. I think, that's a good point. I think, uh, I think Ivana is feeling torn feeling torn between her duty as a creator for fauna flora and also as a as a mother to these things right so she understands her greater purpose being that she needs to populate this world with um greenery and animals and whatnot and she's also protective of them because there are her creation and I think her insecurities stem from the fact that she sees her creation being vulnerable the way that they will be and it's not just elves and men but now there's like a third minion (laughs) you know there's the dwarves so now it's coming in from like all angles and not only that but it's her husband who created the third um the third children, the third race. So um, he, more than anybody else, knows how dear her creations are to her. And he's like, well, they're going to need some fuel for the forges, you know? And <laughs> See, I, I'm sorry. I, 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 yeah, I smirked when I read that final sentence. When I, I, I smirked twice in the last paragraph. I smirked when she used the word um, bountiful. Because she uses it like this, at the beginning of the paragraph, tongue in cheek way, and at the end too, she's like, "Oh, you got to keep them. Wow, he's um, you got mm, bountiful." Like it was like almost like a, like she was, couldn't find a nice way to say that she was annoyed. But at the end, she's like, "Yeah, you know what? He is bountiful because he gave me something uh, that's going to protect my trees now." I, I, I snickered at that, and then I really snickered when he's like, "Well, whatever. They're going to need wood." See, that's it was it was a matter of fact. It was like, a, "Yeah, well, you know, tough." kind of thing and uh, I I don't think uh, personally I don't think Ole is mistreating looking down on Yavanna I mean I can see the argument I can see the argument the other way but at that point there I read that last sentence nonetheless they will have need of wood as do you if know? it was just kind of well, it's 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 out of our hands. It's you know, it's got nothing to do with us really. We're just we're just tasked with with creating it. Other than that, it's it's up to them. I think that's a really key point. Sorry, go ahead, May. I think uh, Ollie's just being <laughs> a regular guy. He's being practical, <laughs> you know. And Yavanna yeah, is being true. like he the, wants he wants the easy life. You know, it's like for him, it's like yeah, well, you know, something's got to give. And she's being more true perhaps to her 
emotional side, you know, where she kind of focuses more on her fear of what will happen on, 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 I mean, she is mother nature, so on her babies and whatnot, you know, so, uh, I mean, they both and they they both saw the song. They both know what will happen once the children awaken. They they've seen probably the cities that are being built, uh, that will be built. They see um, the um, the wars that will <laughs> take place. You know what I mean? They they're being taken yeah. from the awakening of the children, and they've seen it until uh, the new age. You know, so there will be a cycle of of growth and destruction and whatnot, and That's it. I think it's just being confronted with the reality of it that kind of shakes Yavana. Like, she's like, oh, this thing is real, you know? It's yeah, it's yeah. a shock. Like, like, like Ad said, in the immediacy of it. Also, I think a key distinction for Ole, I don't think he'd have that same nonchalant attitude if they were still his. But to Ole, I think once the uh, Allfather, once Iluvatar says, yeah, I'll uh, I'll plug them into the music, they're, you know, I'll, I'll give them life and uh, I'll accept your offer to take them. Um, then they're no longer Ole's. And he says, look, they're the Allfathers now. It's out of my hands. They're going to need wood. Like, it's... I think he would care more if they were still his, quote-unquote. Yeah, you know, he's, he's he's almost moved on because he knows that, you know, it's it's years and years and years and years away before he can... Play with them is the wrong word, but... Yeah. No, but you know, that's wait, a good wait, way to put wait it. Wake them up and, and let them, and, you know, and let them do their thing. Um the way yeah the way i read it it was it was a shock factor for yavanna she's reacted she, i think emotional is exactly the right word may i think i think you've you've hit the nail on the head with that she has responded she's very protective of her creations and she's suddenly been met with this new threat and she's she's trying to do something about it Yeah, and rightfully so, as as a mother figure, that's probably her responsibility. I, I saw it too a little bit like, uh, if it's a dig, it's a dig to me like two uh, married couple who cheer for opposing football teams ads or hockey teams here, where yeah. it's it's like a you know yeah you, it's a bit of a rivalry between the dwarves and the trees, um, but it's maybe to him like a fun rival. Yeah, you know yeah they chopped a lot down today, or you're. Your Ents, uh, you know, they, they whacked a bunch of dwarves, but it's, yeah. I don't know, I'm not going to say the whole thing's a game to them, but in this, I think it, some of it's sort of in the same spirit, since they have these sort of different interests. It's like my, my team versus your team, and I, don't, I didn't We, see it as a belittling thing so much. When you come to our place, we'll beat you. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. No, I, I agree, I agree, I agree. And, yeah, that'll bring us to the last uh, sort of point about, uh, I wanted to bring up about the uh, juxtaposition between the dwarves and the Ents, uh, in that the dwarves were created by Ole in haste. He was impatient. He couldn't wait for them to arrive. Uh, and in response to that, Yvonne goes to see Manway and says, oh, I remembered I, I, I want tree shepherds. And uh, when she eventually creates them, she creates a race of tree shepherds who are anything but impatient and hasty. So that certainly is is on purpose. Did, did you do you like how that sort of fits together? Yeah, I did. You know, don't be hasty. Um, <laughs> it's a, it is a is a nice parallel, isn't it? Of, of opposites, in much the same way that Ole and Yavanna are opposites that have attracted. Um, mm -hmm. you, you know, their their children, their their creations are again very 
different to each other. True, but you cannot spell hastiness without E-N-T-S, nor can you spell mythologies without M-A-Y. Which brings us next up, guys, to mythology, and this one is a good one. Uh, It really is May. It's um, probably the most eye-opening for a lot of people. Yeah. Even some pretty hardcore fans... Uh, of the uh, professors probably didn't know a lot of what's in there this week. So just set us up briefly, May, and talk us about, uh, tell us about what the bulk of mythology is about. All right, so this week, mythology is looking at Tolkien's take on the dwarves, how he created his uh, mythos for the dwarves, um, how the creational myth came about, how the names came about. So anybody familiar with The Hobbit will recognize quite a few names taken from the Volspa, uh, straight out of Norse mythology. And um, yeah, you might just find yourself being uh, a little surprised by what you find out in this segment coming up. Welcome to Mythology, a time capsule where we explore the work of the professor through the lens of world myths. In Tolkien's Silmarillion, we get an account on how the race of dwarves came to be. Let's remember that the dwarves are not Elevator's original creation, such as elves and men are, but rather the loving labor of Aule, the smithing god. Aule was impatient for the arrival of the children. He wanted the children to be so he could love and teach them his lore. In feeling this way, Aule hid deep in the earth, and there, in secret, forged a new race, the race of dwarves. When Iluvatar found out, he reprimanded Aule, as it was not in his dominion to create humanoid life forms. Stricken by remorse and humility, Aule submitted his creations to Iluvatar's will. Aule raised his hammer, and ready as he was to kill his children, Iluvatar stayed his hand, forgave him, and granted him the permission to keep the race of dwarves alive. This particular event is strongly reminiscent of God's intervention with Abraham. In the Old Testament, Abraham is asked to prove his faith to God by sacrificing his son Isaac. When Abraham does not falter, however pained he is with the prospect of killing his own beloved child, God grants him clemency, and Isaac lives on. Now, let's take a look at Norse mythology. As you might remember from our previous mythology segment, Tolkien was heavily influenced by Norse myths, as we will discover shortly. Norse mythology speaks of the giant Ymir. Ymir is a forefather who was killed by Odin and his kin. His body was transformed and shaped into Midgard. From his blood, Rivers flowed, and so did oceans. From his skull, the heavens. From his bones, mountains. In his flesh, maggots festered. The gods gave shape and souls to these maggots, and hence began the race of dwarves. Now, let's take a look at how Tolkien appropriated the concept of dwarves. In Norse mythology, dwarves are short and stout, skilled smithsmen, They live in rocks or boulders or under mountains. They craft treasures prized by the gods. Some of these examples include Thor's famous hammer, Mjolnir, 
wooden spear Gerod, the spear that never misses a target, and Odin's gold arm ring, which can make nine duplicates of itself at will. The Volspot is an account of the creation and end of the world. In it, a witch talking to Odin enumerates all the dwarves who came to be. And to use an English word borrowed from Old Norse, Tolkien raided the collection of dwarf names, as you will see. Fili, Gilly, Thorin, Oakenshield. Please note that Oakenshield and Thorin are actually two different dwarves. Bombor, Dvalin, Durin. Hmm, sound familiar? Perhaps. How about Gandalf? Yep. Gandalf was originally the name of a dwarf, but Tolkien assigned it to his wizard. If you find this segment of mythology informative, you might like these books. The Norse Myths by Kevin Crossley Holland. Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman. Please don't forget to subscribe to my channel and give it a thumbs up. Let me know how Norse mythology and Tolkien's work rock your world. This has been your segment of mythology. Thanks for watching. Now, back to the show. And so that uh, awesome segment, which looks even better on YouTube, go check it out on May K. Hella's YouTube channel. Give it a like and give it a share. Uh, that awesome, awesome segment really was eye-opening. May, was that, uh, even for someone who knows Norse myth, those dwarf uh, names aren't, weren't familiar to you, were they? Um, the, the names themselves were not familiar when I was reading The Hobbit. I had no right. idea they were taken from the Volspa. But um, studying Norse mythology and then realizing, like, oh, my God, I... I know this guy, and I know this name, and what are you it guys doing cool. here? Is this the right book? But yeah, it turns out that um, it's it's actually pretty shocking. Um, it is, I mean, and it's, it's not to to, uh, to interrupt, which I am doing, but um, I'll just put you on the spot and say, are you of the school of thought that these names were raided and pillaged, um, you know, stolen, or or is this an homage? What, what do you? What's your school of thought on that? <laughs> well, I think my position is pretty clear from uh, mythology, from the video. <laughs> um, uh, you, you know, um, if Tolkien was um, a writer who did not disclose his inspiration, if he hadn't come clean with, you know, the things that got him going, such as Norse mythology, then I would, I guess I would be upset to find out that you know, so much of his work comes from um, from that kind of myth. But because he was open about it, because he um, he I, I believe he also translated part part of the um, uh, some some of the body of work of Norse mythology. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. He but did. I no, absolutely, he, he did. He, he did work mm -hmm. with that. So um, the way I see it is he. He used it. He it was like applicability for him, right? So he took something that already existed, a concept that existed, and he just tweaked it. And I think Tolkien is a master of retelling, which is not little to say because as a writer, it's really hard to take a story, spin it on its head, and just make it fresh again. And I think mm. he did wonderful by doing that. 
Yeah, I think I think the reason I see it as homage and not theft entirely is because he made up uh, 600 plus names. I believe I believe is the number I Wikipedia'd, and to 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 you know, it's not that he didn't love to make up names. Um, so to use these that were already uh, existing characters for me is just obviously on purpose, and that he he didn't. Um, he didn't want to make up the names for these characters because they were special to him. And so he used important uh, inspirations. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And I think from a, um, like you say, from the perspective of like an homage, I think it, you're right. It does. It's a tip of the hat and whatnot. But what's important mm. to remember, and I think we touched upon this in the past, is that Tolkien wrote fiction. He wrote fantasy. He created a world that serves as entertainment. Norse mythology was a religion observed mm. by thousands of people over the course of a couple of millennia. So let's keep that in mind in the sense that to some people at some point in history, this was their system of belief. This was uh, what they believed existed in in terms of the, the sacred, in terms of the um, the mysticism of, of faith and whatnot, you know? So um, um, I think in our mo modern society, we're kind of used to seeing everything with a detached perspective, especially when it has to do with the past, you know? We see polytheistic, is that right? Yeah, polytheistic. Er polytheistic? That's a tough word, mate. A, Don't worry. This I'll, is I'll, so good in the outtake. <laughs> yeah, most of this won't find its way into the uh, into the show, but at the very end. Um, so when you have a polytheistic, when when uh, our, our modern perspective on polytheistic uh, religions is is one, you know, we look back and we're like, oh, that was cute, you know, because um, our system of beliefs nowadays are are are, are faded uh, or. Um, you know, how can I say that they're they're mainstream, they're they're thinned out, they're yeah. they're kind of like uh, ethereal, you know. They're diluted, aren't they? Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. That's a good word, ads. Thanks. Uh, much more efficient than my last fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go for something beginning with Polly, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> um. Yeah, so where am I, I got to say, May, I, I feel like I'm having a second Santa Claus moment here. Are you saying that Middle Earth isn't real? <laughs> <laughs> You're it breaking is my if heart, you want man. It to be. No, <laughs> listen, dude, it, it is if you want it to be. If to you this stuff is real, then who's to say it's not? Uh, no, I, I mean? obviously I'm making a joke, but you're right. And that's uh, a big part of what we've discussed a little bit before and a big part of, um, you know, what finding fairy is all about. Um, it's, it's, it's what you believe is real to you. Um, can, I just, yeah. can I just say, James, can I just Go say ahead. then, because that, that leads nicely on to something that you said once, that they're Tolkien's dwarfs. They're not, they're not the dwarfs of Norse mythology. He's taken the names, but he's, he's made them very, very different um, yeah, that, no, that is a, a good point. Race. He didn't steal the characters; he stole the names. No, no, exactly. That's true. Uh, May, May, we yeah. we did cut you off there, but um, what you were making a good point about the difference between you know Norse mythology, where these things came from, uh, and the fantasy world Tolkien created. Uh, that that sort of um, shows itself across all of his works. And like, like you pointed out in your mythology video, he didn't just take from, from one place either. That Abraham 
um, homage, uh, retelling, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, th- that's pretty strong as well. And, and there's a few themes that are so strong that people, s- that it's the reason we keep uh, saying words like applicability uh, uh, versus allegories, because some people look at it and go like, come on, that's obviously a retelling of X, Y, Z. Um, yeah. When to him, it's just these things uh, in Middle Earth's history uh, seem familiar to you because these are the natural things that happen with human nature over the course of yes. many, many years. And um, I totally agree with that because these main themes come back and they're relatable because they're part of the experience of being human. I mean, yeah. what, what, what a powerful thing to do than to be asked to kill your own children. Like, I mean, nobody would ever... Uh, you know, concede to doing that, you know, you, right. y- your children are everything to you, you know? So yeah. Yeah. yeah it's the ultimate, the ultimate bluff sacrifice. Call. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so I, I mean, mean, these are, these are themes that, that are ageless that transcend time and religion and culture and whatnot, you know? So, yep. No, uh, very, very well done, May. So hats off to you and another quality segment. I will say about, uh, the Gandalf part of that, um, Gandalf was in the original texts, uh, before it went to print, Gandalf was the name of Thorin's character. Uh, the, uh, Tolkien did take that name uh, of a dwarf and give it to another dwarf. <clears throat> but somewhere along the editing process, uh, he ended up transferring that name to Gandalf, the wizard, who in those original texts, when Gandalf was a dwarf, the wizard was named Bladorthin, or something very close to that, which yeah. is an awful, yeah. See, that, awful that name. That would never have been a bestseller if that's how you <laughs> <laughs> Bladorthin. Well, I think the dragon's name, no, I know the dragon's name was Prifton, not Smog, in the very early uh, editions as well. Prifton doesn't sound as good to me, but it's better than, it's better a dragon's name than Bladorthin or Blathordin is uh, a wizard's name. What do you guys think? So strange, wouldn't it? No, I just can't get my head around that at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're famous to us now. We can't, we can't think of Gandalf as uh, having any other name. <laughs> Okay, well, really well done, May. Super, super segment, yeah, and we look forward to mo- more of those. Thank you. Thank you, guys. No, no problem. Uh, okay, so we're about to uh, do some shout-outs uh, and wrap up this mega marathon of a show. Um, before we do that, guys, we've recorded this skit out of sequence, and, and now that it's recorded and in the bag, and we've played it uh, not so long ago in this show, anything you want to talk about? Um, I want to say that I really had fun doing it, and I, it made me want to do more. Uh, ads, what was your... Uh, impression of doing that little sort of make-believe thing yeah i loved it i have to say i was i was a little dubious with the concept but as soon as you know we saw it on paper and we we thought we thought about it and i mean you two did a wonderful job putting that sort of skit together and it was just such good fun to act it out it was just really 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 good fun to do and definitely want to do it again um i'm already looking at chapters um, yeah, me not too. Just from the Silmarillion, but for Lord of the Rings, you know, which we can have some, you know, a lot of fun. Uh, me too. With that idea. I think actually the next chapter coming up, where um, an elf and a, a, a Maya, a Maya fall in love, would be a good skit. We could just have like five minutes of silence. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's, that's, yeah, that's not too many stage directions there. <laughs> no, um, and adds your voice recovered. What was it? Three days of no speaking after that? Oh man, that was bad. Yeah, it was really, really. Um, I, I had a lot of uh, honey and lemon. 
<laughs> well, good. It was worth it. It paid off. You did a fantastic job. And May, Yavanna? Oh, I just love putting flowers in my, air, in my hair and smoking Orvar. I don't know. It's just a blur. <laughs> the, uh, the flowers are still in there. It's been, it's been 22 days, but the flowers are still in her hair. <laughs> What's amazing is they're undying, so there's something going on there. <laughs> no, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah, it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Um, thanks for, for coming up with that idea. It was all sort of sparked by, May was like, oh my gosh, the end. Sounds like she came up with that while she was like, hi. And then it, <laughs> next thing you know, <laughs> we, we're editing together audio for a skit. So, yeah, we'll, we'll do that again do for sure know, at the next you know, opportunity. Let, let us know what you think. And um, if you like it, let us know because, you know, we'll, we'll do more. If, if, if you hate it, then, then let us know and we won't. Well, we will probably anyways because we're stubborn. Yeah. Um, but we'll know as we're doing it that you guys uh, are hating on it. And so we'll try to make them funnier and better. Uh, so either way, feedback is good. Yeah, um, it is. It really yeah. is. Yeah, yep, no, do know. hit us up. Uh, and we do appreciate hearing from you guys on any of our platforms uh, at The Green Door Pod on Twitter. Uh, find us on Facebook, The Green Door Pod uh, Facebook group. Shout outs, yep. guys. Do you, before I start on my little list, and um, at, at some point very soon we're going to hear Harry Merle uh, fire up his guitar and take us out. Uh, so I'll mention his name now and, and I'll try to do it again. But check out Harry Merle on Twitter. Uh, check out Harry Merle on YouTube because he's got some amazing stuff. Thank you, Harry, once again. Um, before I hit my little list, is there any people you guys wanted to give special mention to? Yeah, I've got I've got a few people. So um, the uh, very very clever Matt Salvatore at Salvatore underscore Chief, who does some amazing um, YouTube stop motion videos. Uh, he's just started some Lord of the Rings inspired ones, which are brilliant. So yeah, amazing check him stuff, out. Matt. Um, you've got the, the wonderful At Home One Hangout, Mike, Matt, and Professor Chuckles, who do a really good job. Um, I know James will be talking uh, Tumbling Sabre in a bit, so I'll, I'll leave, leave him to mention them. Um, but we do have Prancing Pony podcasts as well, who have been really friendly on sort of social media. So, you know, Alan and Sean, they do a fantastic job. Give them a listen. And last but not least, um, Jeff Lasala, a Silmarillion Primer um, at Tor.com fantastic if you just want to see the Silmarillion in a really fun and interesting way yeah I love the way he spins um, a lot of the takes from the book into more modern uh, language and more modern ideas yeah. it's a really fun way to look at it so check out Jeff's stuff he was on my list too so I'll start there Jeff's been really good I've been hitting him up for some advice uh, DMing and stuff and he's just always accessible super nice guy thanks Jeff um, thanks, I Jeff. also yeah I wanted to mention uh, the guys at the Tumbling Saber podcast. I do it every week, and even though uh, these aren't the exact same fans, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars communities uh, definitely overlay. And if any of you are looking for a couple of hours every week about uh, Star Wars from every angle, go check out the Tumbling Saber guys, Kyle, Corey, and uh, now Carlos, uh, very often. So go check those guys out. Um, yeah, and yeah. La yeah, here, here, here. Love you guys. Uh, and last but uh, never least, I'd like to mention um, everybody on Twitter uh, who's been just playing with us. Uh, there's just so many people from Caitlin, um, especially uh, Caitlin, who adds and I, we were talking about yes, you uh, off air. Um, we're, we're, we're thinking that you'd be the first member of a very special club that's uh, starting to form in our minds, uh, Caitlin. But everybody mm -hmm. on Twitter who's been retweeting and participating and saying hello, um, Thank you very much uh, for your time and your ear. 
Uh, on that note, May, is there uh, anybody in your family you want to say hi to so that your kids can laugh when they hear their names? Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> a big shout out to Alex, Thomas, and Katerina, the sunshine yeah. of my life. Awesome. I heard Thomas is <laughs> ill right now, so hopefully he's feeling better when this airs. <laughs> yes. Cool. All right, guys. Well, um, as I said earlier, um, we've got uh, certainly Harry Merle's music firing us up. Well, ads assigns you guys some homework. Okay, so on the next show, we will be discussing chapter three, uh, entitled Of the Coming of the Elves and the Captivity of Melkor. So give that a read and uh, hopefully have a listen to us discuss it next time. Excellent. Um, check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Check out May K. Hella's YouTube channel. Uh, check that make and make sure that your cloak uh, is still your cloak because there's so many piled at the door now. Uh, you could end up grabbing the wrong one on your way out. Uh, we look forward to seeing everybody next week um, on location at um, someplace new in the Shire. And we'd love to hear requests on that. Where do you want to hear us um, podcast from? Let us know. And have a terrific evening. Good night, ads. Good night, May. Good night, guys. Good night.
walk into a room. Are you guys braiding each other's beard? <laughs> Whip burning bras. Well, Ad's, Ad's beard isn't long, isn't long enough yet to braid. <laughs> uh, no, we're, we're measuring our we're measuring our swords. <laughs> oh, I've got God. a broad sword, James. What's yours? We're g- <laughs> Oh, and and God. my axe. And my axe. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, dearie me.